Are we rolling, Paddy? We're always rolling. We're always ready. <laughs> it's a huge hit, did you yeah. know? Uh, well, apparently, so you keep telling me. When do you think is the best time to get a dog, in your humble opinion? That's the theme today. I'm Paddy O'Connell, but enough about me, because I'm here with my friend Maria McCurley. I am indeed here. When is the right time to get a dog after this lively, jazzy theme tune? <laughs> Because I said to you recently, I think it's a risk. Life is a risk, Paddy. But I think the late adopter is fraught with woe. One of our guests who's coming leapt onto our pod has made a Sunday Times best-selling book out of this question. Kate Spicer. Yes. Called Lost Dog. That's right. And she addresses how her rescue dog helped her salvage her broken life. Yes, and I think the dog has made her seem very vulnerable and opened up a sort of well of love in her that previously she had kept for, you know, spurious affairs that didn't go anywhere. Let's just introduce Kate's book, which is called Lost Dog. And it is about your lost dog. But it's also about a lost Kate in some ways. When you first decided to get Wolfie, your life was very much like, you know, I absolutely, you know, identified with everything in that. Everything well, in your dissolute life, I have been there. No, my, my grandmother used to describe my life as rackety, which is a, quite a sort of 1930s word for someone that rolls around, rolls around London does, in taxis, spending all their money on, what should we say? Let, let's say... Recreation. Yes, um, flutes of champagne, let's leave it at that. I actually had a great life, but I always felt like there was something missing. Mm. And it turned out what was missing was a dog. Well, it's interesting because you do talk about, you know, your friends were starting to get married and settle down and have children. And you were still kind of like at a party. You, you detail one party where you're there until four o'clock in the morning. No, and you're four the o'clock was early. At four o'clock, I, would, I, had a, I had a sort of gradation system. <laughs> Getting home before midnight was practically like going to bed at 6 p.m. Yeah. Uh, 3 p.m. was fine because that's when nightclubs closed, so loads of people would be coming out of nightclubs. And it was like, oh, everyone goes home at 3 p.m. at 3 a.m. But then it starts to get a bit darker, and you're at 4 a.m. You're like, oh, that's playful. That just means you took the night bus home after the nightclub. And then there's five, and then there's six, and then the light starts coming up, especially in the summer. Some of my friends read the book, and they went, you only got in at six. It was a bit of a mess. My girlfriends had kids that sort of slightly disappealed off out of my social life. I found myself hanging around with these guys more and more. So I reverted back to a lifestyle I'd last had when I was about 19. And even though I was heading towards 50, I mean, it's, it's not really ideal. But into this life came a rescued dog, a lurcher called Merlin. And why did you get a dog? Well, I got a dog because... I've always, we've always had dogs in our family and I always wondered if I could have a dog in London and I thought, well, I'll just get a sausage dog or something like that. But then it was still the fact that I lived in a third floor flat and I was constantly travelling for work and I was always out. Um, so I just thought, oh no, you can't have a dog, you can't have a dog. And then I started saying to myself, why can't I have a dog? I think a lot of people think, oh, I couldn't have a dog. And you're like, why can't I have a dog? And this is actually true. In the book, I have this awful hangover after a big night out. And I go up to a coffee plant on Portobello Road, which anybody who, who likes coffee should go there if you're ever in West London. 
fiercely strong coffee <laughs> and full of all human life and all dog life as well. And so I go to trundling in there, bad breath and just disgusting woman, sort of shivering, needing my caffeine fix. And I bump into a friend of mine who's got the most gorgeous lurcher. And I stroke him and I can feel... I actually was looking at some academic papers today and there is one entitled, Are Dogs Like Xanax? And it was exactly like that effect of Valium. I stroked the dog and something in release, some kind of hormone released in yeah. me. Yeah, I felt soothed. I felt soothed, yeah. Now, we'll return to this because this is what non-dog people will think you've just drunk the Kool-Aid, that this is the talk of someone who's basically gone mad. <laughs> no, it, it, I mean, hang on a minute. You'd only have to go into Google Scholar. There are squillions of academic papers about the various therapeutic ways in which you can use dogs. I mean, the most recent one is not directly connected to dogs, but if you go outside for 20 minutes a day and, and be in nature, you, uh, your stress hormones go down. Well, this is me, me totally. I'm not criticising you. I'm just saying we three sound like we're members of a cult. But, but, but we are members of a cult. It's we a, are. It's a, it's, a really, it's a really big cult. But I also find people who don't like dogs are members of a cult. We all have things that unite and identify us. Dogs and it's are quite only a healthy one cult. of them. But dogs are so hot right now. They are really hot. So we're talking about it Have a we lot. reached peak dog, do you think? We will never reach peak dog because I think with them... Um, it's the whole gender thing. Eventually we'll do away with gender completely and we'll just be able to choose what species we want to hang out with. And we can just, we can just go to the, to the having a baby now shop, withdraw some sperm, and we can just choose exactly who we want to spend the rest of our lives with. And maybe, maybe it is a dog. It's so romantic the way you put it. Withdraw some <laughs> sperm from the baby shop. I'm going to return to the way you treat your boyfriends during this conversation. No, do not do that. But I think... We, I went into a hipster pub the other day and there were... More dogs than people. Anyway, let's get back to Wolfie momentarily before we discuss the oxytocin release of stroking a dog. Well, I was just going to finish telling yes, you, why, you why I got him. And um, I had this big argument with myself about why I couldn't have a dog. Oh, I can have a dog. And then we, we just decided, let's get a dog. And we went, went through the, the adoption process, which took much longer than I thought. I think it takes about nine months to adopt a child, because three months to adopt the dog. Yeah. We kept getting turned down. Uh, and then because this, of this, dog, this dog arrives, and I'm so nervous. I'm like, God, what, what, if I, what if I can't look after it and I have to send it back? And then I just thought, oh, hang on a minute, I've got so many friends who shouldn't really be able to look after children. If they can do children, I can do a dog. Yeah, and, and you really, we, as we now know, totally can. We're here four years later with the dog now renamed Wolfie, who's the star of a book, which is a bestseller, because you lost him. And we don't want to give everything away. But you grew attached to this dog in a way that we now know friends of yours thought was very close. I think people were happy for me because they saw an immense change in my life. Did it make you soft around the edges? It made me... Well, for a start, people started saying I look better because, wow. I, was, because I was going to bed earlier, getting up earlier, and I was taking... And I was out walking the dog twice a day. I mean, you're, you're going to look better, aren't you? I was happier. I had structure in my life. I mean, dogs, dogs are an immense... I don't want to say crutch, that makes me sound really needy and dependent, but you, they are, they're there for you. What about those late nights being the last to leave the party? Uh, they, they didn't end, but <laughs> I quite often take Wolfie with me, and he'd just look at me, it's a fantastic look, where he just looks up through his like, shaggy eyebrows, and like, really? And did he have... Is Charlie the real name of your boyfriend? No. no. So your boyfriend has given the name Charlie, also 
adored the dog and liked the effect on all, all, all three of you. The dog was a rescue, it became happy, you became more structured, he liked it. It improved the life of three mammals. It was what they say, <laughs> win, win, win. Yeah, and, and it was a time when you were going through a difficult time, time with him. I, I find relationships super, super hard. And I thought, I assumed my relationship was quite bad. We're both quite awkward buggers. And I just assumed my relationship was quite bad. But, but actually, I think people just don't talk about how difficult relationships are. I mean, I, I was talking to a photographer's wife the other day. And she said, oh, it was such a relief to, really, to, to read that. You know, I want to kill Richard at least once a day. <laughs> but <laughs> and, they've, and, they, and they've been married for sort of 40 years. But you're but still together. The thing is, before... Charlie. Fake name of boyfriend. Fake name of boyfriend, yeah. Before, <laughs> before Charlie, I hadn't been out with anyone for longer than two years. I was a complete and utter oxytocin junkie. And, as, and the minute the honeymoon period was over, I was like, oh, terrible cracks and fissures are appearing. What could it be? What could it be? Oh. It takes us to midway through the book, which is, it's improved your life. He's a rescue, not the boyfriend, the dog. Your life is rescued in a way. Then we get to the point when the dog is lost and you and him, the boyfriend, are bereft. Yes, I mean, I was talking, there's another dog book out at the moment called um, Everyone Died and Then I Got a Dog by Emily Dean and we were both on Women's Hour this morning and she lost her mother, her father and her sister all in a really short period, which is quite unfathomable. And I felt almost embarrassed going on to sort of talk about my difficult time when my dog went missing for nine days. And she said, don't worry, I'm not offended. I lost my dog for 40 minutes once and it is totally the same feeling mm. as losing your family. And what was actually transformational about the, the loss of the dog and what I learned from it was I'd always been carrying around a lot of pain from my childhood, I think. It was like an, ident it was an identity. I was like, oh, yeah, I had, my, my parents had a bad divorce, blah, blah, blah. And well, I can I interrupt? I'm sorry, yeah. this is a bad time to interrupt, except it seemed, if I read the book correctly, that your mother took your brother away and left you behind. Oh, I mean, divorces in the 70s, the old school divorce, the children were the last thing that was thought about. Yeah. My parents weren't particularly, aren't bad people. They're fantastic, lovely, normal human beings. But the way that these things, the way that it worked out was I ended up living with my dad and my stepmother and my, with my brother Tom. And then my other brother, Will, went to live with my mum. I mean, this situation only endured for about five years, but it was really difficult. And it I, wasn't the decision of a court, it was the decision of a, of a parent. Oh, they were in and out of court. I mean, I can't, I don't want to talk to my parents about it. Because no. when I speak to my dad about it, he gets angry. It's angry about my mum, and I hate hearing him be mean about my mum. And when I talk to my mum about it, it's, I can see them suffering, and I, I can't bear it. So it's become this sort of strange thing in my past that's mythologised, and that, I, I haven't had that much therapy, but I, I think that's what happens with your past, is you mythologise it, yes. and you carry it around. And, and, and I interrupted the story because you said you had a stressful childhood which you carried into adulthood and then you lost the dog and it brought things to the surface. Well, no, what it did was, was when I felt what I felt losing the dog, it was so acute and so severe, I realised nothing this bad has happened. I mean, my mum leaving at six was traumatic, of course it was. But I'm now, you know, at this stage it's 40 years later and I've done, I've done a lot of living since then. I don't need to be carrying that around with me. So to just explain it, losing the dog and the severe grief and fear and sort of madness of that made me realise that I was too attached to things that were from way, way back and actually nothing bad had ever happened to me. I'd never had that feeling. 
when you write, you know, so painfully about the first night of him not being there, yeah. I mean, it makes my heart break. Matthew Freud's lost his dog a couple of times, and I asked him, what's it like losing a dog? And he said, uh, he's a quite a tough guy. You, you have to dig quite hard to find a heart in there. And he said, it's like losing a child without helicopters and press conferences. And it's exactly that. It's incredibly tra traumatic, very frightening, and you're completely on your own. That's what you say, nobody cares. Because it's just a dog. Police don't care, you know, nobody's... I mean, your campaign to find Wolfie, which involved... I do remember it on Twitter, actually. Endless Twitter updates putting posters up all around North London where he went missing and, and being relentless about it. I wonder, would you have ever got him back had you not been that fastidious about the posters and the Twitter and the Facebook? Social media really took over that campaign. What brought Wolfie back to me wasn't Twitter. It was something really old-fashioned that brought Wolfie back. But I explored every avenue from a number of psychics to social media to all this sort of thing and what all of these things did was keep the most valuable thing we all need just to stay alive and that was hope it kept hope alive but also the twitter campaign people saw him people definitely saw wolfie so i knew he wasn't dead in a ditch because there had been a recent sighting i mean it, looking back on it it must have been a real adventure for the people observing it because they weren't as emotionally invested, although people did... A taxi driver told me once that he burst into, that he was crying for me. Think sort of... Because I... And, um, well, because you live vicariously, so you think, how would I be it, in well, that yeah, situation? Yeah, I think it was a bit like a sort of a living soap opera. A living soap opera. And people said they were constantly checking the, the, the um, Find Wolfie um, hashtag. And people became very, very invested in it. And I think possibly because I'm a writer... I could keep people invested with the word the way I wrote because mm. I look at lost dog posters and if anyone here is listening to this unfortunately loses their dog in the future don't just write the basic details try and get across that that dog was loved Paint that it picture. had a family don't just give the basic factual details get get something that will hook and emotionally invest people so we're trying not to give too much away about the process although we have implied that the dog was found again because he's in the room well, with us well Paddy I may have had Wolfie cloned. There is some... So we won't give everything away. No, well, you know, the very fact that Wolfie is here is in the room today is might a be... A but I, I don't think that matters when you read the book because it is a revelation about how one feels about one's dog, how you felt about yourself, how you evolved with the dog. And I wanted to ask you, I know this is rather horrible, but the grief you felt when he went missing, we talked a couple of weeks ago with somebody about losing your dog mm. to the big field in the sky... And dying is the word. Yes, I well, don't know. They say like go and pass over the rainbow bridge. <laughs> I don't like the word fur baby. No. And I think when dogs die, they die. Yeah, that's they right. don't go over the rainbow bridge. They but don't. But the real dog cultists, they have whole other language. For the, what? For them for dying. dying. Yeah. Uh, for, and for owner. And for owner. But what fur mummy? I've never heard fur mummy, but I've heard mummy and mummy's here. <laughs> Everybody talks the same in Paddy's world people, that isn't him. But no, but pe people do do that, and you find yourself doing it. So my even my boyfriend, who's rather a cynical, quite a hard guy, 
who'll go, go on, go and find mummy. I'll be like, don't say that. What are you doing? He's like, oh, God, sorry. So you just find yourself picking up this sort of doggy vernacular that I don't think existed outside the world of Barbara Cartland in the 70s when my parents had dogs. They didn't call themselves mum. My dad didn't call his spaniels. It's, oh, come here, daddy, come to daddy. That's true about that. Now, when in the book, when the dog goes missing, there's another person involved in, in opening a door. We, let's not go into it, but... Did you blame the people who were in control of your dog at the time it went missing? In the book, you try and make it look like you didn't. But I'm feeling all the way along, you were secretly blaming the people who were hosting your dog for a weekend. That is absolutely fantastically interesting that you think that, because I don't blame them. It took me a long time to write this book, considering yeah. the dog went missing in um, on the 31st of October 2015. I... It took me a long time to write, and that was because I'd realised, you've got to tell the truth. I could not believe what I'd done to our family, because if the dog didn't come back, we were, it, it was going to be Broken. really complex. In what way are you a changed person now? Because you've gone through the dog being lost and found. Are you a better owner now? Are you less precious with your dog than you were before it went missing? Are you a bit more like your dad in the <laughs> 70s? You know, come on now, and a bit less woo-woo and boo-boo. Have you got a dog, Paddy? I have. So I, I do have to be precious about who I leave him with because he's a bolter. But that's not because I go around going, baby, boo, boo, boo. I just have to look after him properly. Like, Maria, you've just done an impression. <laughs> no, I don't do that. I was asking you earlier. But and my I, boyfriend won't, yes. won't leave him with anyone except his, his mother. He's, oh. he's I'm, I think, more deeply affected by it than I am. I slightly fell in love with your boyfriend, actually. So did I. In, <laughs> what I wanted to ask you, and we, then we went off on a tangent, was... It was and one of my questions. It wasn't a tangent. It just wasn't one of your questions. <laughs> it is a little bit harsh, but we were talking about dead dogs. Has the experience of losing Wolfie in some way prepared you for losing Wolfie? That's really, really interesting. I think about him dying every day because I want to prepare myself for it. But I also am prepared to just go take to my bed, I think. What did they used to call it in Victoria times? Having the vapours, yeah. yeah. I, I Elizabeth Barrett Browning, you just lie on the, on the yeah, sofa. Yeah, I, I think probably I will be incapacitated by grief for quite some time. And then I think, it, like, like all kinds of grief, that when you lose people that are close to you, although that hasn't actually happened to me yet, I think you, you live with it and you assimilate it and it becomes part of being a human being. But am I prepared for it? Everybody keeps... I mean, I, there, there's a character in the book, this um, sort of French aristocrat who was really unbearable, misogynistic guy that I meet at a party in a chateau. And I, I cannot believe... We've got so little in common. But then we start talking about dogs. And I said, oh, do you like dogs? Because somehow it always comes back to that now. And, um, and, he's, and he just said, I can't have another dog. It's too painful when they well, go. Yes, yes. And the way well, he'd been talking about other human beings was ghastly. And then the moment he talked about a dog, I saw softened. a chink. And, his, and the light in his heart came out. And that's what dogs are amazing at. My friend said to me he can make himself cry just by thinking about his dog dying. I mean, I, I, I do... I mean, it's not really living in the moment, is it? Because the one thing dogs are good at is helping you live in the moment. Yeah. Mindfulness and living in the moment. Dogs really help you go to those places. Um, but I do... I do th Think about, anticipate how his body will change, anticipate how my, what he will need from me will change. And actually, my grandmother died at a reasonable age after a fairly long decline, and the grief wasn't powerful. I think if he got hit by a car, it would be different from an old dog 
going at the right yes. time. So yes. maybe maybe it won't be too. Might bad, you get another one? Deluded. Might you get another dog? Oh, that's a huge question, isn't it? Do you, yeah. I mean, he's a real one one woman dog. I only say that because when I had a dog that was end of life, I went on the Barking Hour, which is Joe Good's, or her listeners said, get another dog now. Yeah, everybody says that. Get and one I, a few years before. Yeah. And I had a, two dogs for three weeks, and then I wanted to go to bed forever and be grief-stricken. But you and had to get out. you have a little puppy that you've you got. You had to get out. I had to. They're so, I mean, just the fact of just getting you up and out every day, I think that is probably the, the biggest thing they give to you. It's not the cuddles and the unconditional love and all that sort of nonsense. Well, it's not nonsense, it's very important. But the having to get up. It's a responsibility park, for another being, being in nature, exercising, the meditation of walking. It's have jolly you, good for you. Have you got more questions? No, I think I'm just listening. I think you, um, uh, and I think that we are at the end, actually, unfortunately, of the podcast. <laughs> we, we could record another and put it as episode two, but we are. Near well, we'll the wait end. for Kate's second book, Further Adventures of Wolfie, but happier times. I have got an idea for a second book. But oh, God, on. the pressure is unbearable, isn't it? What is the idea for a second book? Is it involving dogs? I couldn't. You don't have to tell us. I, I. Do, do you think the next book should have dogs in it? Yes. Or should I try and do something totally different? No. Where do you go after dogs? Well, the I publisher think... looked at me. She's like, I've talked to her about a few different ideas. And she's like, it's not a dog. It's, it's so dogs. raw. The thing is, it's so raw. Should I just you... stop and do... No, you just write with such passion about it. And it's so raw. And it's so page-turnable. And everyone I've met has done it in two days. It's not one of those books that you go, oh, I'll leave that. I'll do 10 minutes every night. You have to what, read the whole thing. Yes. I, what I enjoyed about the book, what I enjoyed the book on many levels, what I enjoyed was that uh, Maria's put this more succinctly, but you turn the mirror very sharply on yourself and then the cadre of people who are media, the cadre of people who are metropolitan, and there's a question of friendship. And I wonder if you could write a book about friendship, friendship between women, friendship with men, relationships, whatever, but I don't know whether or not you'd sell it to a publisher because it wouldn't have the word dog in it. <laughs> well, some of my friends are dogs, so I'm bitches. <laughs> now, we're going to close it now because we both want to look at a picture of Charlie, frankly, and we can't do that while we're holding the mic. So I'm going to say fantastic job, Kate, on Lost Dog. So lovely, Kate Spicer, that you came in and spoke to us. And good luck with the next book. Bye.